Heavenly Father, again, we thank you for the word that you've given us, and we thank you for the inspired men that have been used by you, and we pray that you will inspire us with the same Holy Spirit as we look at these important texts today. In Jesus' name, amen. What does it mean to be in financial partnership with God? Well, I'll tell you one thing it means. It means that your life's going to be a lot less stressful, and it means you're going to be more contented with what you have, and it's going to mean that when you, Jesus returns, he will say, well done, good and faithful servant. I'm going to tell you something interesting. As one who uses a computer a lot and you do a research on it, the words well done are only spoken to those who manage their money Christianly. Look it up. Well done is only spoken to those who manage their money Christianly. So this is pretty important. So the Bible says in Deuteronomy 16, 16 and 17, they shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. Every man shall, uh, that should be give as he is able, according to the blessing of the Lord your God, which he has given you. Then giving to God is by far the most significant financial factor in life management. I believe this is absolutely true. Kathy, uh, who has been the manager of our family, and I'll just tell you, we just had our 42nd anniversary, and she's been managing our money all these years. And she said, you know, there are many times when if I had waited till the last thing to write the tithe check, we wouldn't have had enough money. But she always writes it first thing. And somehow God has blessed us incredibly ways that we could not imagine. And if you can imagine working on a pastor's salary, uh, even though I'm an attorney, the thing I was going to tell you earlier, I didn't mention it, you know that if you're a professional person, you make 100000 a year. I should have added, unless you decide to work for the church. <laughs> because the, whatever level of education you have doesn't make that much difference. When I went to law school and I came back working for the conference, my pay scale was exactly the same and has been since that time as a pastor. I believe that we should, all of us, get as much education as we can. We're told that God can use anyone through his spirit, but those who have an education stand on vantage ground. Look up vantage if you want to, and you'll see it real simple, uh, that you stay on vantage ground. In other words, God will give you opportunities that you don't have. I mean, incredible things have happened to us. And I'll, I'll just tell you, this is kind of like a GYC. Well, you know, I've spoken at GYC at Chattanooga and San Jose and other places. Well, they're doing a GYC next year in Australia, and I've been asked to come as a speaker over there. Well, the awesome thing is the rewards are not all monetary. In addition to that, God says, great is your reward in heaven when you work with him. And I think that's going to be true. So I think we should all be so valuable the church can't afford to pay us what we're really worth. And that, that's my personal philosophy about this. So we're going to look at when we put God first, he will give us wisdom and he will bless us. Now, I've already told you about Proverbs 3, but I want to talk to you now about Deuteronomy 28. Let's, if you have Bibles, let's turn there. Deuteronomy 28. And you know, in Deuteronomy 28, there's something very, very interesting phenomenon. Does anybody know the setting of what Deuteronomy actually is? Why is Deuteronomy in the Bible? Exactly. The idea is God stopped the Israelites right before they crossed the Jordan River into the land of promise, and Moses gave them his last four sermons. And Moses was not allowed to enter the promised land. Do you sometimes have a difficult time understanding the Bible when it gives them hard things to see? For example, Moses said to the people, I wanted to cross over into the promised land in the worst way, but God said, you're not going over, and don't ever mention that to me again. It's settled. You're not going in. 
Doesn't that sound harsh? I mean, he worked with the Israelites, this stiff-necked people for 40 years, and God did not allow him to cross into Jordan, across the Jordan. For what reason? Anybody know? He was disobedient by striking the rock instead of speaking to it in God's name. This is kind of, and he'd already asked forgiveness for it. But remember I told you earlier, and listen, the preachers here have been talking about this today as well and last night, and I want to tell you something interesting. The most important thing you could ever figure out for yourself is God's will for you. And you want that to happen for you. So whenever you pray, you ask, Lord, this is what I think I need, but I'm going to ask you for your will to be done. Have you ever heard your will be done? Moses wanted to cross over to the promised land in the worst way. And God said, you're not going over. What you're going to do is you're going to climb up on this mountain. I'll let you look across. You guys believe in miracles? God said, I'm going to give you sensory perceptions you've never had. He gave him bionic eyes. If you read about this in Prophets and Kings, Ellen White says, when he looked into Jordan across the river, he not only saw greenery, he saw grapes on the vineyards. Can you understand? I mean, this is like, I don't know how many times, 150 magnification or something. Incredible. He could smell the flowers and he could hear the birds singing. And God said to him, now you've seen where they're going. I want you to lay down here and die and the angels will come and bury you and nobody will ever know where you died and nobody's going to make a shrine out of your, your, your uh, uh, graveside. Now, this is an interesting situation and he did that. Now, most of you know that Moses could have been a pharaoh of Egypt. Do you guys know enough about archaeology and history to understand that? I mean, this is pretty amazing stuff. But he chose rather to suffer affliction with God's people and so on. The amazing thing, if he had chosen that route, where would he be today? He would be a mummy in the Cairo Museum or the British Museum. Is it true? I mean, that's probably what's going to happen to him. If he had gone into Palestine as he really wanted to do, he would be dead and buried. But God said, my will for you is not either one of those. I would like to take you to heaven. Where is Moses now? He's in heaven. The Bible says that Christ himself came down and fought with the devil over the body of Moses and took him to heaven. And he was there by there and was able to come down to the Mount of Transfiguration. You remember that with Elijah. And this is a real interesting story to me when you see that. So Moses is giving, he's no, he's not going in. So he's telling the Israelites these things. If you have your Bible, Deuteronomy 28. The first 14 verses are all the promises to faithful people who are in covenant with God. But the last verses, and there's 53 of them, are curses. Remember in Malachi, the third chapter says, you're cursed with a curse, even this whole nation. These are the curses. You do not want to get involved in these curses. They're really awful. I have never preached a sermon on it. I've never heard anybody give a sermon on the curses. I just want you to know where they are. They're right here in this chapter. But we're only going to look at the blessings. So let's look at the first part of Deuteronomy 28. Now it shall come to pass, if you diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God, to observe carefully all of his commandments, which I command you today, that the Lord your God will put you, set you on high above all the nations, and all these blessings shall come on you and overtake you, because you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Now I'm going to tell you what this means to have blessings overtake you. 
Where I live in Washington, D.C., last year in the metro area, more than 700 people had their cars carjacked. Do you guys understand carjacking? This is not theft where you go to sleep at night and the next morning your car's not in the driveway. This means that typically it happens, you stop at a 7-Eleven type place for gas and you decide, well, I think I'll get myself something to drink. So you fill your car up with gas, go inside to pay, and when you come out, there's a guy standing by your car with a gun and says, give me your keys or I'll kill you. You think these guys mean it? A young attorney just a few months ago had driven a brand new Jeep Cherokee, had stayed late at work, went inside to get something to drink after he filled his car up, and the amazing thing, when he came out, there was a guy there with a gun, and he said, give me your keys or I'll kill you. And the guy, thinking he's an attorney, I'll talk him out of this. He's smarter than this, you understand? The guy with the gun shot him through the neck, and it paralyzed him from his neck down. He will always be a quadriplegic the whole rest of his life. And the guy drove off in his new Jeep, leaving him in a pool of blood. Well, let me just tell you that in those circumstances, whenever you're out at night, you have to listen if somebody's coming up behind you or whatever. How would you like to turn around and see God's river of blessing coming to your family? Not a carjacker or a thief, but blessings. Is that what the Bible says here? You can see it. It says, all these blessings will come on you and overtake you. They're coming faster than you can run because you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Blessed are you in the city and blessed are you in the country and so on. There's many blessings, but I want to show you verse 12. The Lord will open to you as good treasure, the heavens, to give you rain in its land, uh, in its season, to bless the work of your hand. You shall lend to many nations. You shall not borrow. The Lord will make you the head and not the tail, and you shall be above only and not beneath if you heed the commandments of the Lord which I, of Lord your God, which I command you today and are careful to observe them. So the obedience and being in partnership with God is really pretty awesome stuff. So we're going to look now at uh, why do people give? Well, they give to glorify God as the creator, to integrate God into the material side of their life. So people understand you can actually practice Christianity. I think that's important to show thanks for God's grace and blessings. So I want to talk to you about biblical tithing. Most of you probably were tithing when you were little kids, but I'm just going to tell you something amazing right now. This is very interesting that I'm telling you. Only about 40% of Adventists tithe. I know that because I'm the stewardship director of the North American Division. I mean, that should be one of the things I know. This is incredible. And I'm, the reason I'm telling you that is that some people are so materialistic, they think that they want to spend it and not give it to the Lord. Now, I'm sure most of you are faithful tithers and you think everybody is, but it isn't true. I don't know how many of you were listening when the preacher spoke today, but some of the people in our churches are dead, spiritually dead. They are not in covenant relation with Almighty God. And God says, well, we'll go on. We're going to look at biblical tithing, how important it is. Tithing is not a matter of generosity or gratitude. Ellen White tells us that in the book Education. It is a matter of honesty with God. Now, you're going to see this. All the tithe of the land is the Lord's. It is holy to the Lord. Now, since the tithe belongs to God, what could God do with the tithe if he wanted to? The right answer is anything he wanted to. He could take it back to heaven with him, couldn't he? If it belongs to him. And he could also burn it up like he did the sacrificial lambs. Just burn it up. 
but God has a special plan. It's his, and he's the one that has to do with it. So first of all, we understand that God is creator of heaven and earth. The first thing the Bible establishes about God is that he's creator of heaven and earth. By the way, the Bible does not prove, try to prove God's existence. It assumes his existence because he is the creator of heaven and earth. And this forms the foundation of everything else the Bible says about him, about who we are, and about how we should relate to him. The tithe is a tenth part of our income, or if you're in business for yourself, self-employed, that would be the increase. You understand? There's a difference. And this is the first part of our God-given increase that he claims as his own. By the way, listen carefully. I said this at several camp meetings this summer, and I'm going to say it loudly for you. Do not think that you can rob God with impunity and that he will take you to heaven when he comes back. It will not happen. If you plan on going to heaven, you need to be in partnership with Almighty God, and that means everything, including your finances. Don't think you're too poor to tithe. Never get in that position. I'll tell you a little story. Kathy and I were at the seminary, and we had just finished here, and we were out for a summer, and uh, we got married uh, when I finished school, and anyway, we were up at Andrews University, and Kathy's taking nursing, and I'm in the seminary. And when it came Thanksgiving time, we were just too poor to travel to Tennessee, where we had Thanksgivings for many years with her parents in Knoxville area. Thanksgiving is a big deal in North America. Most of you know that. It's the busiest travel time of the year, period. There's more traffic that weekend than any other time. But we could not travel to Tennessee from Michigan because we were just too poor. So I won't tell you all the circumstances, but at any rate, you have to have some kind of special food for Thanksgiving. And it's a different meal than you would normally have. And in our family, one of the things we have always had is cranberry sauce. We used to buy this congealed stuff that you'd take the ends out and push it out and slice it off, you know. We now make our, Kathy makes it with cranberries and all kind of cranberry relish stuff. Anyway, I said to Kathy, what we decided to do was to stay at Andrews and have Thanksgiving with some of our poor friends who also couldn't travel to their families. So we invited two couples to our place. And I think it was like Sunday the week before Thanksgiving or Thanksgiving week. I said to Kathy, why don't you go out and buy some cranberry sauce, some other stuff, so we'll have the food, you know, for here. She says, well, I was planning to do that, but I don't have any money. Do you have any money? And I said, no, all I have is I have these four $10 bills in our top drawer, my dresser drawer. I don't keep them there anymore, so I'm not giving you any secrets about our house. <laughs> And I said on, on, on Sabbath, I was going to turn that in for tithe. And then I said something that you maybe have tempted to say in your life. I said, I know tithe is for the ministry, and we are studying for the ministry, and God knows how poor we are, and we could pay it back. You, you have guys ever been down that lane at all where you just kind of rationalize a little bit? Well, at any rate, uh, Kathy and I looked at each other and said, no, we're not going to do that. So we put it in the tithe envelope. By the way, I highly recommend this. As part of your family budgeting and your family planning, you should take the offering envelopes home from church empty, like by the handfuls. So Kathy usually takes a half a dozen or so that will you know, last us for a few pay periods. At any rate, so we had a tithe envelope at home, and so we just put on there $40 for tithe. And I had uh, done some work for a guy, and I got $400, and I had put $360 on our bill at Andrews, and I had this $40 of tithe. At any rate, we put that in an envelope and sealed it up. But that didn't buy us any... Uh, cranberry sauce, of course. So later that day, I was thinking, I understand some hospitals buy blood. So I thought, 
this is before cell phones, so I was out working, I went over to a payphone and I called Kathy and I said, you're the nurse, she was taking nursing. Why don't you call around to see if there's any hospitals buying blood? I was just at Andrews last summer teaching at the seminary, and it's interesting that uh, the little hospital in Buchanan, Michigan, about 12 miles southwest of Andrews University, no longer exists. There's not a hospital there now. There's the old building, but the, somewhere, somewhere else in the county. Anyway, she said, they're buying blood, so we went down there. I hate blood. But anyway, I got, they, they typed you first, by pricking the end of your finger and taking this little vial thing of blood that sucks out, and I'm A positive, which is average American you know, many people are that. So after they took my blood, they gave me a little voucher and I went down to the business office and I got $10 for my blood. And when they typed Kathy, she's O negative, which is a relative rare blood type. And so she gave her blood and they gave her a little coupon thing and she went down a little voucher to the business office and they gave her $30 for her blood. Of course, she's never let me forget the relative value of our blood, as you can imagine. <laughs> but <laughs> and we didn't tell the people who had Thanksgiving dinner with us that they were eating blood money. <laughs> but, you know, I tell it later because it's more funny now than it was then. But, you know, I know what it is like to be very poor. I know what it's like to be a student. And some of you are in those circumstances. But I will just tell you, listen carefully. God has honored our family from that day to this in such an incredible way. I could not tell you all the stories. It's absolutely amazing. I could tell you stories that will bring tears to your eyes of what God has done for our family. When we left Andrews University two years later, I had my Master of Divinity degree. Kathy had passed her state boards and finished her nursing and passed her state boards. And we didn't owe anybody anything in the whole world, no student loans and no debts. Have you read the part in the Bible that God says, I will bless you to a thousand generations? There's, that's in the Bible. So here we are 30 years later back at Andrews University sitting in the Pine Memorial Church for our daughter Melissa's graduation. And we have this uh, little program that, you know, had all the graduates listed and everything. And we we're looking at that and we saw Melissa, Suzanne Reed, cum laude, and we were real proud of Melissa. But the neatest thing about it was 30 years later, when our daughter's name is read and she marches across in front of the big pipe organ to get her diploma from the president of the university, only about four people in the whole room knew that Melissa had no debts, no student loans, no bills to Andrews University, and she was graduating debt-free. I think God is awesome. Do you understand what I'm talking about? This is really important. And if I have time, I'll tell you one more near the end of the session here. The word for tithe and tenth are used interchangeably in both the Old and the New Testaments. For example, in the case of Abram and Melchizedek, which is the first mention of tithing in the whole Bible, that's Genesis 14, verse 20, where Abram gave a tithe to Melchizedek. It says that he gave him a tithe of all. But when you hear the story in the New Testament, which, by the way, is Hebrews, the seventh chapter, first 10 verses, talks a lot about tithing and mentions that same experience and it saved him and gave him a tenth. So tithe and tenth are used interchangeably. By the way, in many years of teaching stewardship, I've never had anybody question the tithe and tenth part. Never once. Because it's so plain in the Bible. But we're going to look at another one. Satan's plan for your money. Uh, most of you are probably aware that Seventh-day Adventists have a unique view of what's happening in the world. We understand, we're seeing things that are showing us that we're right near the end of time. 
we understand the big picture, we call it the great controversy. We understand the struggle between good and evil. So it's significant what's happening in the stock market. It's significant what's happening in the financial world. It's significant that this past week there were four major disasters in the world where hundreds and hundreds of people lost their lives. Does everybody understand that? I mean, this isn't just happening. This, we're near the end of time. And the amazing thing, part of the great controversy is the devil would like to trick people into being lost just before Jesus comes. And I'm going to show you something interesting. Selfishness and materialism plays a major part in the great controversy. Now, I have the opportunity many times a year to speak to workers' meetings. This is pastors' meetings. Sometimes it's a whole union like the Southern Union meeting or the North Pacific Union or the whole division like the, uh, the Trans-European division where we went last year. And, you know, we have meetings because they're strategy meetings, evangelism meetings and that kind of thing. Do you think the devil also has workers' meetings? He does, and Ellen White was given a view of one of the devil's workers' meetings. And it's recorded in Testimonies to Ministers, page 473 and 474. And what she heard the devil speaking, by the way, this is in quotation marks in Testimonies to Ministers because the devil is speaking. Did you know that the devil is actually quoted in Ellen White's writings? Here it is. It's very important. Here's what she heard the devil saying in one of the devil's workers' meetings. Go make the possessors of lands and money drunk with the cares of this life. Present the world before them in its most attractive light. They may lay up tra their treasure here and fix their affections upon earthly things. Now, let me just stop there and ask you this question. Do you think the devil has been successful at this? It's amazing that he has been successful at this. We must do our utmost, the devil continues, to prevent those who labor in God's cause from obtaining means to use against us, keep the money in our own ranks. The more means they obtain, the more they will injure our kingdom by taking from us our subjects, make them care more for money than for the upbuilding of Christ's kingdom and the spread of the truths we hate, and we need not fear their influence. Now, I want you to see the part I've underlined here. Very amazing. The devil says, for we know that every selfish, covetous person will fall under our power and will finally be separated from God's people. Now, that is amazing. This is in Councils on Stewardship also, but what I, the quote I have is Testimonies to Ministers 473, 474. Now, let me just tell you something. Money is so strong that the last test for all the people on the earth is you can't buy or sell unless you receive the mark of the beast. You understand? Don't have any money? Out of business. The last test to the faithful people, Revelation 13, you cannot buy or sell unless you take the mark of the beast. Now, you understand how serious this is. You can't buy or sell. This is very serious. So we trust God for our eternal life. In those days, we will trust him for our day-to-day -day life. And that's really, really important stuff. So I'm going to show you something. God gave us tithing as the hedge against selfishness. I heard Kermit Netterberg say it this way one time. That was very interesting to me. He's a pastor in Beltsville, uh, Maryland. He said, I could use all the money I get, but I'm happy to give God his part because he's got more where that came from. And he blesses our family. You get the point? This is very valuable to learn. And by the way, don't think that you're going to tithe someday when you start making real money. The point is, be faithful of what you have. God says, you've been faithful over a few things. I'm going to make you ruler over many things. You understand? No matter what the level is, uh, that's important to know.
So we're going to look at now, we've already talked to you about Abraham. I'm not going to mention any more about that. Jacob is an interesting story also. This is more appropriate for students probably because Jacob was a young single man, not married yet. And uh, Genesis 28 talks about his story. And uh, if you have your Bibles, turn there to Genesis 28 because it's a very, very interesting story. I think it's one of the more famous and well-known stories in the whole Bible. But Genesis 28 tells the story of how Jacob and his mother, Rebekah, deceived Isaac into granting him the inheritance. You remember that? Even though he was the second born. And uh, it's very interesting. I'm going to show you the story. By the way, do you think people argue about inheritance money even today? When Esau realized that he was not going to get the birthright, he said, my father is old and blind. And when he is, when the days of mourning are past, we know when he's dead and people stop mourning. By the way, in those days, they mourned for someone famous for 30 days. Anyway, when the days of mourning pass, I'm going to kill my brother. And he meant it. So Jacob had to leave home. Now, I don't know if you've ever understood about running for your life, but Ellen White says that Jacob ran for two days without stopping. Now, I'm telling you, where we have property up in the mountains, occasionally you see, I mean, I've only seen this one time, but I saw a deer that had been chased by hunting dogs. And it came through the field where I was, and it was so panting that his tongue was hanging out about four inches, and he just stopped and heaved and so on. He had been only running for maybe an hour. Do you understand? But if you ran for four days, excuse me, two days, Ellen White says he ran for two days. Obviously, you can't run that long, but he ran as far as he could go and then would stop and get his breath and get a drink and run again. And finally, at the end of the second day, he just said, you know, I just can't go any farther. I've got to stop. And he found this big rock, the Bible says, and he put it at his head and hid behind it. You think he prayed before he went to sleep? I think he prayed earnestly for two things because God came and answered it that night. He said, God, please don't let me find my brother find me sleeping here because his brother was an outdoorsman, could easily track him. Don't let my brother find me sleeping, and I want to come back to my homeland again someday. This was an incredible experience. And the amazing thing is the Bible says, I love this. I wish I could read like Alexander Scorby, but it's really, really interesting that he laid down then in verse 12 of chapter 28 is where we're going to look. It says, and then he dreamed... And behold, a ladder was set up on the earth and its top reached to heaven. There the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the God of Abraham, the, your father, and the God of Isaac, and the land of which you lie, I will give it to you and your descendants, and I'll bring you back here. In other words, he, he promised him probably everything that he prayed for and renewed the covenant with him. An incredible experience. The next morning when he woke up, something amazing happened. He took that big rock that he had put by his head, stood it up, poured oil on the top, and he called the place Bethel, which is house of God in Hebrew. Every time he ever passed that place from then on, even when he was bringing his family back from late Haran, you remember, he stopped there and they had a worship experience by that stone, God's house, he said. But he said to God, you can see it right at the end of the chapter here where he's looking, verse 22, the stone that I've set as the pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will surely give a tenth to you. So as a young adult, single guy, before he got married, he said, God, count on me. I've just been converted. I'm going to be a tither. And he always was from then on. That's what it's about. Well, let me just show you. If I were to ask most of you, what, are the, what is the major tithe text in the Bible? What would most people say? Malachi, the third chapter. 
that is only after the Babylonian captivity. These are the two texts in the Bible that deal with tithe. Very, very important. Leviticus 27, verse 30, all the tithe of the land is the Lord's, it is holy unto the Lord. That's this one, the tithe belongs to God. Then the next one tells you what to do with the tithe, and that's Numbers 18, 21. God says, I have given the children of Levi all the tithe in Israel as an inheritance in return for the work they do, the work of the tabernacle of meeting. In other words, what he's saying, I'm going to use the tithe to support the ministers. And that's what he does. Very interesting. That's the way the Bible puts it down. Now, here's something very interesting to you guys. A lot of people don't understand this. Many evangelicals, Larry Burkett and others who I've studied with, had this also. But Ellen White has it. Council on Stewardship, page 65, many years before these guys were born. The tithing is the modern equivalent of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And a lot of people do not know this. Let me just tell you, the tithing system is the equivalent to the last day Christian of the tree of knowledge of good and evil for Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Don't think they're the only ones that have a test. We have one too. Now I'm going to give you an illustration so that you'll understand this. When I was at Loma Linda doing a Master of Public Health in community nutrition class, we learned that eating between meals is not a good health habit. Does everybody know that? People who eat between meals have more dental caries, more hypertension, more obesity, etc., than those who eat only at mealtime. Uh, my secretary, Lori Bryan, is a sweet young woman, and she's worked with me for 12 or 14 years now. So people sometimes come around with snacks, like a donut or something, and uh, she, she, I'll be on the phone or in my office, and she'll say, well, you can leave one here, but he won't eat it till dinner time," because she knows that I practice that. And that's a good health habit, isn't it? So I thought, for example, when Eve ate of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, she must have been eating between meals, and this caused the problems for the whole world. And, you know, it's, it's a real serious situation. But then I found this interesting statement in the book Education. It's page 25, and it says there was nothing poisonous in the fruit itself, and the sin was not merely yielding to appetite. So there goes my in-between meals thing. I put these numbers in here in these little quotation brackets, but it's just a direct quote from the Spirit of Prophecy. It was distrust of God's goodness, disbelief of his word, and rejection of his authority that made our first parents transgressors and brought into the world a knowledge of evil. Now listen carefully. If you are an adult and understand tithing and you're not tithing, it's for one of those three reasons. And that is the only reasons you couldn't be tithing. Do you understand why there's a modern equivalent? It's very simple. So when we're faithful with our tithe, we show God that we trust his goodness, we believe his word, and we accept his authority. This is really Christian living. This is the, the bottom line stuff. So I'm going to show you another one that's very interesting. And this one is our covenant relation with God. Somebody's talking today about the, I think it's Skip McCarty from Andrews in one of the seminars about the Old and the New Covenant. Well, a covenant really in our covenant relation is a promise agreement. Remember that salvation is not a unilateral contract. I'm just going to save everybody in the whole world. Salvation is a bilateral contract. God offers it and we accept it. You understand? I mean, we're both involved in this. Very interesting. So we're going to look at this. Council on Stewardship says, he who gave his only begotten son to die for you has made a covenant with you. What's a covenant? It's a promise or an agreement. He says he gives you his blessings and in return he requires you to bring him your tithes and offerings. A lot of people think they tithe to get God blessings, God's blessings. But the bottom line is what comes first, the blessings or the tithe? The blessings. 
the blessings always come first. God says he gives you his blessings and in return, he requires you to bring him your tithes and offerings. And this is important. Now I'm gonna show you this one because it's an interesting one and I'll have to give you a little illustration so you'll understand. The Bible says failure to tithe is robbery. Listen carefully. There will be no active robbers in heaven. Is that true? Yeah, there might be a lot of reformed robbers and sorry robbers, but no active robbers. Now, this is kind of an interesting thing. Now, most of you know that when you come to school here, whatever degree you're going to get, you probably have to take freshman English and psychology and maybe a couple teachings of Jesus or whatever. Is that true? Now, let me just tell you something interesting. When I went to law school, I did not intend to practice criminal law, but there are certain core courses you have to take. So one of the courses I took was criminal law and another criminal procedure, even though I've never practiced criminal law. But you have to take them as part of the core. But what I found out was something interesting. There are different levels of theft crimes. If while I'm gone someday, someone steals something from my yard, say a lawnmower or a bicycle or whatever, and if they were arrested later, what could they be charged with? It's not robbery, it's theft, exactly. It's just, it's one of the minor theft crimes. But let's just say that someone breaks into my house and steals my laptop computer. What could they be charged with under those circumstances? We're talking about some serious stuff here. In many jurisdictions, it's burglary. Classic breaking and entering the dwelling of another person with the purpose of committing a felony inside. Now, this is very serious stuff. Our son, Andrew, is an attorney in Florida, and he practices criminal law. And he said to me, Dad, if you get convicted of breaking and entering somebody else's house in Florida, automatic six years in jail, no judge can commute the sentence. It's statutory law in Florida because it's to protect our house and our well-being and our privacy. You understand? So, but you haven't been robbed yet in what I've told you. Robbery only occurs when the owner is present. It is the worst and highest of the theft crimes. Do you understand? Now, I'm going to tell you, I have personally been robbed. It is not fun. Uh, when I was at General Conference in ASI, as Secretary of ASI, uh, the ASI guys decided it would be a wonderful thing for the fathers in ASI who wanted to and their sons to go on a mission trip together to Guatemala to build a school during Christmas break sometime, or summer break. I'm not sure exactly when it was. It must have been summer. At any rate, 16 of us decided we would go together. And we all flew in from different parts of the country and landed at Guatemala City. And you know, it's always evening flights, so when the time we collected our, our luggage and gone through security and the customs and, and all that stuff, it's like 11 o'clock at night. This was a Maranatha program, highly organized. So we had sent our money ahead and they'd already bought the building materials and so on. But what they didn't do and which they will never do again, they didn't give us overnight accommodations near the airport. Instead, they had rented a bus it was a school bus looking bus, except it was pink with big purple polka dots on the side and it said Turista in big white letters, which in Guatemalan Spanish means rich Americans, please rob us. Which happened to us in the middle of the night. We were driving down the Pan American Highway toward Totonicapan and some guys in a truck pulled sideways across the two lane highway right in the cut of a road and uh, they stopped and jumped out with guns and our bus skidded to a stop and they broke into the bus and robbed every one of us at gunpoint. I will never forget this for what happened to me personally. I had the forethought to stuff our passports and our, our uh, plane tickets to get back to America in my sock. So those are the only things of any value that we salvaged. 
but the guys were coming down the aisle systematically with guns in their hands, robbing us of everything. The man two rows in front of me, I won't mention his name, but had a genuine Rolex watch taken right off his hand. When they came to me, I had a brand new, cheap, Timex watch I had paid $9 for on sale at Walmart because I knew that I was going to be mixing mortar and doing block work and so on. I didn't want to ruin my good watch because this one's a $15 watch. And so I had this $9 Timex. <laughs> anyway, when the guy came to our row, Andrew, our son, was sitting beside me at the aisle and I was sitting at the window. And uh, he looked at my watch and he started pulling on it. And I said, cheapo. I forgot all the Spanish I learned in high school. I just said, cheapo, you don't want this thing. I mean, it's not worth taking off. And he pulled on it, and I, I, didn't, I didn't, you know, offer to take it off. So he had a 38 revolver, an old rusty revolver. He pulled the hammer back and stuck it right at my head. And he was so nervous, he just kept bumping my head like that. And I thought, man, if this thing has a hair trigger, my brains are going to be blown out on the side of the bus. And Andrew said, Daddy, give it to him. He was nervous and I was nervous and I took the watch off and gave it to him. I could have lost my entire life for nine bucks. Crazy. You understand? But I was robbed and that's what I'm telling you about is robbery. How does God get by with saying failure to tithe is robbery? Anybody know? Remember I told you the owner had to be present if robbery occurs? What does David say? Where can I flee from his presence? If I go to a high mountain or the depths of the sea, he is there. Hebrews 4.13 says, All things are naked and open before him before whom we must give an account. Do you understand? And we're willing to do God harm to use his stuff for what we want to do. That's why it's so serious when we think about it. Okay, we're going to go on quickly. And uh, well, I'm going to show you something that I think is very interesting. The, the evasion of the positive commands of God concerning tithes and offerings, and offerings, by the way, is registered in the books of heaven as robbery toward him. He who embezzles his Lord's goods not only loses the talent of lent him of God, but loses eternal life. Yes, please. Sure. That's a good question. Uh, some people ask whether they should be tied on the gross or the net, you know, their, their, their gross check number or the amount of the actual check. The same thing is simply true. I think that things that benefit us for our life experience, like things that we would use for food, clothing, and shelter, and so on, are tithable. So I would tithe it, my student income, and that kind of thing. Now, remember, I understand, because I have been there through many levels of education, how poor students are. But I think if you're willing to put God first, that God will bless you. And I, I know it's true anecdotally. I mean, we have these books over and over again that our office have printed with 300 stories of families that wrote in and said, if you think God did great for you, here you should hear what he did for me. Now, I think that we need to understand that God is not nitpicky and God does not need the money. So if somebody gives me a shirt, I don't typically tithe it. But if somebody gave me $20, I would tithe that. Do you understand? Uh, but it's, it's between something you work out between you and God. God doesn't need the money. He wants our hearts and wants to know if we're faithful or not. I mean, we can understand in our heart whether or not we're doing the right thing most of the time. You understand? So I think that if you're just grateful and you're systematic and you're regular, God will bless you. That, that's what I think. I don't know. 
there's not really a lot of counsel on, on the tithing of the, of the small portions. Remember in the Bible, it was based on the income that you had or the increase that you had in your business. But in your particular case, you know, a scholarship or something, I think that if you didn't have the ability to tithe it at the point, you might want to give a thank offering to God just for his blessings to you or your family. You understand? Yeah, I understand, and it's hard to, to, to do that. Uh, another thing, uh, some people ask me about lawsuits, for example. Let's just say that somebody, uh, I'm driving through the green light, somebody's texting on their cell phone, and they run through a light and smash into my car. Uh, well, the thing I'm going to tell you is, believe it or not, this happens regularly, and what I'm going to tell you is somebody's wrong there. Let's just say that you're hurt and you can't work for a long time, maybe a whole year. Well, when the insurance settlement comes, you get your car repaired you wouldn't tithe that portion because that's simply putting you back whole to where you were before. But the part that in lieu of your work, if you were working, you would have earned that money, then you would tithe that part. See what I'm saying? So it's part of your income situation. That's what I think. And a lot of you uh, probably have, uh, you know, different focuses or different life experiences. Did you have a comment? What about the pain and yeah, well, pain and suffering, that comes part of it, too, which is kind of an interesting thing. But I would think that it would be a general income to you. That would be my, my personal feeling. And, and let me just tell you another thing. This is, I just, well, I have to hurry, but I want to tell you a story. This is amazing. Our son, Andrew, went to the University of Tennessee Law School in Knoxville. But we were living in Maryland at the time, and as all of you know, when you go to an out-of-state school and you're not an in-state resident, a state university costs you more. It would cost 4000 a year to go through the, the law school at that time uh, if you lived in-state, but it was 12000 a year to go through as an out-of-state student. So he comes to the University of Tennessee to go to law school and registered with an address in Maryland. So he's paying 12000 a year to go there. It's like 4000 a quarter. At any rate... This is such an amazing story that I want you to understand how significant it is to him. Our family philosophy, based on the spirit of prophecy in the Bible, is that you give the inheritance to children when they're young adults and not when, they're, when you're about to die and they're old in their own, own right. Remember that inheritance in the Bible is always land to build, prop, build a farm on when you, when you start out in life. So they're not going to be farmers, so you give them their education. So when Andrew graduated from college, just for the sake of illustration, I don't always tell this, but we gave him $20,000 for his inheritance. He knows now that when we die, the rest of our stuff is going to God because we paid his way through law school, essentially. But I'm going to tell you this is amazing next. Andrew called me and he says, Dad, you know, I'm always faithful to my tithe, but I've got this 20000 and, you know, I know that it's inheritance is typically not taxable, and uh, I didn't work for it. It's just because I'm your son, and, you know, should I tithe it? And I said, well, I don't really know whether you should or not, but if I were you, I would follow the principle that I've practiced, if in doubt, tithe it. And I'm going to tell you why that. And this is very, very valuable. And that's a good question, so we're really answering it for everybody. But anyway, I said, you know, the first time tithe is mentioned in the whole Bible was when uh, Abraham was given the tithe, all the wealth of Sodom and Gomorrah, and he tithed it but didn't keep the rest. He just gave it to Melchizedek. So it's like a gift that he got. So I said, I'd tithe it if I were you. So you would understand this is the largest tithe check he's ever written, $2,000, you understand. I mean, this is an amazing amount for a young person. But he tithed it. And then he says, I'm going to tell you what I'm going to do. He says, I'm going to ask if I can be recognized as an in-state student at the University of Tennessee. So he went to the uh, uh, registrar's office or student office. I'm not sure which one. Anyway, he said, what would it take for me to become a Tennessean? 
and they said, whatever you registered as when you started school is what you're going to be your whole course. So that's the end of the conversation. So I'm just going to tell you, Kathy's, my wife's Aunt Lucille taught in the math department at University of Tennessee. Her whole life was a tenured professor and retired from there. Their daughter graduated from the University of Tennessee and went to Florida for two years to work and decided to come back and do her master's. Because she had been away for two years, they charged her out-of-state tuition, even though she was a graduate of the University of Tennessee and her mother was a full professor. So, I mean, that's how hard they are to get in-state. But remember what I told you guys earlier? When Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, he could have done everything he asked for help on, like he said, where have you laid him? Do you think Jesus knew where he was? Of course. When they got to the tomb, he said, you guys roll away the stone. Well, Jesus could have easily done it, but he didn't do what they could do. And then when he came out, he said, you guys unwrap him and let him go. Jesus could have just melted the grave clothes, you understand, but what they could do. So Andrew said, I'm going to do what I can do. So he registered his car in the state of Tennessee, and I would say that there's probably lots of cars out here without a state license on them, because if you're a student, you can prove it. You don't have to change your license plate. But he changed his license plate. He got a Tennessee's driver's license. He registered to vote in Tennessee, and he got a job. Then he wrote to the university regents in Nashville, Tennessee, and he said, I have done all I can do to become a Tennessean. Would you kindly recognize me as a Tennessean for tuition purposes for the rest of my law school? He mailed the letter and it was gone for like six weeks. And one day he got this letter from the Board of Regents and he wondered what in the world this is. So he opened it up and it says, Dear Mr. Reed, we have received your letter and today at the Board of Regents meeting, we brought up your application and we have decided to grant you in-state tuition for the balance of your, your state, the last two years of law school. It saved him $16,000. Now what I'm gonna tell you is something incredible. When Andrew called us, he says, you will never have to encourage me to be faithful in tithe again. Well, this is amazing stuff I'm telling you. God is sovereign over everything, and this is important to understand. So, you know, I mean, you know, I could have said, well, no big deal, don't tithe, you understand? But when I tell people, I typically say, pray God's providence in your life, and if you have a question, be faithful in that area. God will bless you. Okay, we're going to go on here, uh, and I've got a, a couple of things more to show you. Uh, what I'm going to show you... Oh, this is important to you, to you. See where it says tithing is an act of worship? Uh, I was just last weekend speaking at, at, near Spokane at Hayden Lake, Idaho. And the people out there, when they talk about more than one person, talk about you guys. But when you come to the South here, it's you all most of the time. You know, it's a nice term, really. And so w when I heard y'all, I thought, well, maybe Malachi was from the South because he says, bring y'all the tithe into the storehouse. <laughs> he does say that. But the New King James is better, where it says, bring all the tithe into the storehouse. Not y'all bring the tithe, but bring all the tithe. You understand? The whole tithe. Don't try to, to keep back some. That's important. Yes, please. There's an 11, um, page 11. What book is that out of? On one of the oh, oh, I just didn't take it out. My secretary would shoot me. She does most of my PowerPoints, and she does them all systematically with, you know, the right colors and backgrounds and everything. And when I come to special meetings like this, I'll take them out of other programs and put them here. And it's the workbook, page 11, and it's your money. It's my book, It's Your Money, isn't it? The workbook. So it's, it's immaterial. It was up at the top, right? Yeah, okay. Sorry. Uh, th there's so many things that I could tell you about tithe, but I want to just go. I see we have two minutes left. We're going to go to what, the, what is an honest tithe. And that one, I'm going to have to go very, very quickly over to it. And I'm just going to go do it right now. And there, next one is it. There it is. If you want to be faithful with God, 
an honest tithe has three elements. It's very, very simple. In English, they all begin with the letter P. And the first one is portion or percent. We know where that is, one-tenth. The second one is the place to return it. We know that is the storehouse. By the way, where is the storehouse? I heard somebody say the right answer. The right answer is the place from which the pastors are paid. And in the Adventist church, that would be the conference office. For the convenience of the members and as part of their worship experience, they bring the tithe to the local treasure, the storehouse. But listen carefully, the pastor never touches the tithe at the local church. The treasurer sends it on to the conference, and then all the pastors are paid from the conference. The law of the central storehouse is a big deal in Scripture. I could show it to you. Uh, I maybe uh, I will if you. It, but I know we need to go on to other things. And the purpose, of course, this is Numbers 18:21, the support of the gospel ministry. Maybe I'm just going to show you. Yeah, I'll just show you this. This is really interesting. We still have 30 seconds, don't we? Here we go. After leaving Egypt and during the wilderness wanderings, there was no problem getting to the sanctuary for worship and bringing tithes and offerings. There were tribes all camped around the tabernacle in specified order. But when they went into the promised land, things will be very different. They're scattered all over Israel. Now, here's something you may not know. There's been a use of tithe study, study commission at the General Conference for the last three years, getting ready for the General Conference next year in Atlanta. And I have been asked to be one of the members of that, one of the research members in writing. And my job was to see what the Bible said about the central storehouse. And what I found was incredible. Even though there were Levites living all around them, there were 48 cities that, remember the Levites were not given any farmland, they were given 48 cities, and that included the six cities of refuge, three on each side of the Jordan River, but God still required the tithe to be brought to the central storehouse in Jerusalem. Three times a year, they brought the tithe. And I'm going to just go really quickly to that. These are the Bible principles. You can't see it here. I'm going to show it to you where they are. Well, I'm doing that double. Um, I must have put it, in the, there it is, these three times. Passover, Pentecost, Feast of Tabernacles, three times a year, the people came to the central storehouse with their tithe and offerings. And then it was distributed back out to the Levites all over Israel. So Ellen White talked about it, the Spirit of Prophecy talks about it, volume six of the testimonies. Anciently, the Lord instructed his people to assemble three times a year for his worship. And to these holy convocations, the children of Israel came bringing to the house of God their tithes, their offerings, and their offerings of gratitude. That's testimonies, volume six, page 39. Well, obviously this could go on and on, but listen, it's on the internet. You can get it right off the internet. So all that stuff is up there, and I hope that you enjoy snooping around and finding it. Because there's another meeting at 530, back across the campus, the closing meeting, we're going to close on time, which is right now. If some of you have questions or comments about tithing and would like to talk to me about it, let me just tell you, for your overall financial well-being and success, there is nothing I could tell you as an attorney or a financial planner more significant than being in partnership with God and being a faithful tither. That is very serious stuff. So we're going to pray now, and then you can leave if you need to, or if you want to talk for a few minutes, I'll stay by putting my computer away. Okay? Heavenly Father, we thank you for all of your blessings to us. We thank you that you're willing to partner with us in our life, even in financial matters. I pray that you bless each one that is here. Help us to be faithful to you so that one day soon we can all hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a few things. I'll make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Dismiss us now with your blessing, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, 
or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.